Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Garth Metcalf. Hi, great to be here. And together, we're going to explore the utilization of manipulatives in Upper Key Stage 2. That's the final two years of primary education for anyone listening outside the UK. And thanks to Rachel ML on the Discord for the episode request. We'll get right to that in a second. But first, Chris, what you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? Over the past week and beyond, I've been particularly interested in reading about spelling, read a couple of books on the subject recently. I came across a blog by, I hope I pronounced this right, uh, Monique Nowers. It might be Noah's. It's spelt N-O-W-E-R-S for those searching for it. It's called The Do's and Don'ts of Teaching Spelling. And while I obviously like books and blogs that maybe go against my opinions sometimes, it's also nice sometimes to read something from someone that feels a bit like a kindred spirit on the subject. A lot of her advice, I think, is really sensible. Yes, I'm biased because obviously, as I've said, it aligns with what I think, but it's definitely something to check out. It's very um, well written. It's nicely put together and it uh, reflects her views from discussions I've had with her quite clearly. So, yeah, highly recommended that one. What about you, Gareth? What are you reading for? Well, I'm an avid consumer of podcasts, so it's great to be on this one. And one that I've really enjoyed and and it's kind of a subject I'm really interested in is um is by it's the Huberman Lab podcast by a um a professor from Stanford University uh, called Andrew Huberman um and I kind of have binged a little bit on the back catalogue and and one of the things that he talks about which I found really interesting and I think we could apply as well in education um, very directly is actually learning about how what he would call to uh, to change a level of autonomic arousal and how sometimes we might need to try and increase our level of autonomic arousal, and sometimes we need to decrease that. And, and actually, when I, um, when I worked, you know, when, when I'm working full-time in school, um, I've never found that an issue, really, because the kids just keep you right there. If I ever have a day when I've been doing admin, or specifically when I've been writing resources, I've really felt, like, mentally, how important it is to be able to kind of to do that to be able to what you might describe as toggle on and toggle off and he talks about some of the techniques that can help you to do that which I found really I just found really fascinating and learning about specifically as an adult to prime yourself for learning our our brain releases stress chemicals called epinephrine that kind of make sure that we're we're primed for for learning and 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 um, and adapting which is much harder apparently after the age of 25 he talks about the um the cycles that we have that last about 90 minutes of long for a learning episode and then the importance of being able to kind of down regulate your autonomic nervous system and ways of doing that looking um using a visual system to to basically look into the far distance is very powerful for de downgrading your level of autonomic arousal and resting and so that's something that I found um, I found really fascinating, and I'm kind of digging into all the rest of the episodes at the minute. Excellent. I think before we get started, Chris, I'm going to apologise certainly on my end because of the fact that we're recording on the 5th of November, and there's a very high likelihood that there'll be some fireworks at some point in the in the background. But I'm sure you know people listening will understand. 
that, uh, that that is the case. Metaphorical fireworks in the foreground as well, Kieran, no doubt. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, well, with, with that said, let's dive into this episode. Slight change in format on this occasion because Gareth and Kieran both understand mathematics in primary schools to an extent to which I can only really aspire at this point. I'm going to be the person asking the questions and maybe chipping in here and there in a slightly less than informed fashion. I guess the best place to kick off would be for me to ask, what do we mean by manipulatives? I created a little definition for what I saw a manipulative as being. So I thought something that you can handle and move to show a mathematical structure, to create a mental model or to communicate a mathematical idea. That, that, so that equipment, it, it, it might be a, a simple piece of equipment. It doesn't have to be something we would consider as being, in essence, a mathematical piece of equipment. It could be a double-sided counter, or it could be something that is specifically designed for mathematics, like uh, fraction cards or, or deans. Um, but I think the key thing is that it has a specific use. And if I just give a few examples, so I, I, my definition there talks about showing a mathematical structure, creating a mental model, communicating a mathematical idea. So let's say I was looking at an improper fraction like 10 quarters. And I think I could show the structure, the mathematical structure there by showing, but if I was to have, I, I use what I call fractions cards where I would overlay four quarters on top of a one. Um, and that would be able to represent a one and I could show eight quarters as being two and 10 quarters representing two holes and two quarters. Or say, for example, if I was trying to communicate a mathematical idea and one of my favorite instances where, where I see manipulatives working very neatly in upper key stage two, uh, if I was trying to show the structure of a linear number sequence. So let's say if we were looking at three, seven, 11, 15, and so there I've, I've got a number sequence that is like the four times table, if you like, but it's one less. We start from three rather than four. And so a question that would often arise might be, um, so that, that sequence three, seven, 11, 15. And what we want children to recognize perhaps is they can't just double a number in that sequence. Um, if I just double that sequence, that, that number won't necessarily be in the sequence. So we might ask for three, seven, 11, 15, is 30 in that sequence? And if a child was trying to show the mathematical structure there, they might demonstrate that, for example, with using a numicon three and then the sequence continuing with fours, they might recognize that actually there, I can't just double this. What I would need to do to continue the sequence is just keep adding fours. And so there it might be an example where a, a manipulative is used either to show a structure or even as a form of communication. I don't really think I can add to that. I think that's a really, really elegant and clear description of what we consider manipulatives you know it's it's all encompassing but i think what you've done is what you you know you're famed for Gareth, is uh, making really complex ideas really really clear in the minds of you know in this case the listener so yeah so i think the only thing i'd probably add is what do we mean by upper key stage two and i think we could very easily say well there will be pupils in year five and year six who are sort of have the the level of understanding that is more typically found in pupils in key stage one, lower key stage two. I don't think this particular episode is served by considering those pupils. I think we're thinking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, the mathematics that we've encountered. You, know, you talked about fractions there, Gareth. You know, the, the mathematics that you would normally encounter towards the end of primary school, I think is we're looking at the relationship between that 
and manipulatives, I think. A slightly prov provocative question then linked to that. Is it possible to use an object or a set of objects in a mathematics lesson in a way that makes you think, well, no, that's not a manipulative? Or is it simply the case as soon as a set of objects, any object effectively is being used to explore mathematics in some way that it's automatically a manipulative? Or is there some distinction there? I mean, there, I, I, that is interesting because I think that I, whether you would define it as a mani mani manipulative if it exists, but I think the key thing is if it's actually showing a mathematical structure which not all equipment necessarily could. So um, I, I've seen it, heard that perhaps we have maths equipment on the table that children can use. Now, I would think there that they aren't necessarily showing a specific mathematical structure that's relevant to that lesson. So I think it is possible to have a manipulative that it doesn't perform the function that, you, that the manipulatives are designed to perform. Lovely stuff. I guess the next question that this leads into then is how can we get the most from them I, I think that when it comes to getting the most from manipulatives especially in upper key stage two I think it's around understanding that the, the manipulatives have been used for a specific purpose and that there, there have been instances I would say where I people aspire to be able to use manipulatives and see the use of manipulatives continuing in in upper key stage two which doesn't always, it, perhaps not as prevalent lower down the school. And I would say there's probably good reason why that, it, that happens. I think it's about teachers understanding the purpose of the use of those manipulatives and when it is appropriate and important, and also when it isn't, um, to show a mathematical structure, to think, about, to think about how they're used. And I think the underpinning idea is always comes back to dual coding the idea that if we look at our working memory you know with the limited working memory and we can we can we can decipher if you like language and images simultaneously and we're going to be more able to retain the information if it's tied to an image and and obviously a manipulative acts as that as that image and i think it's about getting the most from them is making sure they were called and, and again if i was to have a phrase for this i think it would be thinking efficient and, and that might be the, the, the way that the, the manipulative is used in terms of who's using it, how many of the manip manipulatives are being used um, to represent this idea practically or visually. So there might be instances where actually all the children having the manipulatives serves the purpose of becoming thinking efficient. And so an, an example that I would give there is like a mental model I might use is if I wanted children to understand uh, 20 divided by three, how many threes in 20? then I might well use matchsticks and, and say to children, how many triangles can be made with 20 matchsticks? And actually in this instance, the, the matchsticks are uh, probably quite efficient. They're, they're quite simple, practically in the classroom, and therefore they're kind of thinking efficient. Whereas there might be, I, I'd mentioned earlier about the fractions cards, and I think it's quite possible that you could spend an inordinate amount of time preparing the fractions cards, having them on the tables for many of the children, and for them to then become very thinking inefficient. So, so I guess that would be what I would consider is how do we get the most from them is thinking, well, which manip manipulatives for this lesson and who should be using those manip manipulatives, bearing in mind the benefit that we'll get from the dual coding and, and the visual representations as well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you say that because in thinking deeply about primary mathematics, I talk about the Carbonneau meta-analysis, and it's sort of 
brings into question, you know, perhaps it's the quality of the studies that have taken place that they were analyzing, but some of the research papers into the efficacy of manipulatives is, is probably less than what you might believe where you'd read blogs and things. And I think it, it very much come down, comes down to the purpose and selecting the right tool for the right job. And as you're talking about dual coding, I'm thinking, okay, well, in the past, I have used ideas like chunking, you know, because you're almost outsourcing part of your memory to that representation and holding a, a larger chunk of information there. So there, there are, you know, despite the, what that meta-analysis says, there are other psychological phenomena, which I think explain the efficacy of manipulatives. You know, Oli Kev and David Goodwin were talking about embodied cognition at Research Aid Surrey. And whenever I think about the structures, I think I think about the movement and how they're an integral part of how we understand. You know, when Garth was talking about what a manipulative is, I was thinking about it's this bridge between the physical world and the almost ethereal world, you know, that bit behind your eyes that you can't really, but that's that's where maths is done, isn't it? And um, certainly is in my head anyway. And the manipulative is allowing you to see that but in, in real time, in, in front of you. And so for instance, if you have got um, multi-link cubes and you're bringing them together in this combination, I think you know it's your whole body that's feeling that sense, that sense of aggregation. So I think, yeah, to get the most of them, I think Gareth's absolutely spot on. We're thinking about, well, what is it I'm trying to achieve through the use of this tool? But then also thinking about which bits of cognitive psychology are we employing to help our pupils, you know, and if you think about Dan Williams, why students don't like school, you know, he talks about making things as concrete as possible. And whether that's concrete through things that pupils have experienced themselves in the past, or in our case, if it's making the magnitude of sort of integers concrete for our pupils through the use of Dinesh equipment, I, I think there's a lot of parallels there. So yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking about what is it I'm trying to achieve on both the mathematical level and then in that you know how children learn on that sort of level as well i think there's certain instances where you the um like a manipulative might you might be used and might tie into children's kind of intuitive understanding and, and be an expression of that and and again i could give an example now that we'll work in one curriculum area and i think the danger is for people to go away and say yes we need just more, I want to see manipulatives every day in Hockey Stage 2. But, and, and, and I actually don't think that, that that is where we'll end up at the end of this episode. But, but let's say I was, I was wanting to understand the process of, um, of when I'm doing a, a division, the process of finding a remainder. Now, a vehicle that I might use to understand that, that we, I, I remember Mike Askew talking about this, where he said to, he said to children in year one, if, if I said to them, what's two divided by four, they're likely to say, I don't know. But if you give them two pieces of toast and there's four children and say, share them, then they won't say, sorry, I can't do that. They, they will do something because it, it ties into their lived experience. And, and then the manipulative becomes a piece of toast. So there, if I was looking at comparing five divided by four and six divided by five and asking which is larger, then again, children might think, well, I don't know. But if you were to say, and um, that there's, there's uh, or them to experience that four children sharing five pizzas, I can compare that to 
five children sharing six pizzas, then I think that children would have more success. And in this instance, it ties into their lived experience because we'd know well, we'd have one pizza each and then either we four of us are sharing that one remaining pizza or there's five of us sharing that one remaining pizza so again that would be a kind of example where and again i know that kieran talks about this in, in, in his book to some extent that the mental model can become a familiar context for a child as well which which of course you could practically outwork both of you in that discussion there when you were talking about the specific purpose relating to the choice of a manipulative talked about underlying mathematical structure now the way i kind of think of the idea of structure that metaphor is that it's effectively the underlying abstract mathematics that that's really what when i think about what mathematical structure means apart from structures of arithmetic which is perhaps a slightly separate thing but when I'm thinking of that metaphor, I'm thinking of, well, what's the abstract mathematics here? So if you're talking about a question where you have, I don't know, three runners going around a track and they take two minutes, three minutes and five minutes to get around the track and how long will it be until they're all next to each other again, et cetera, or they're all aligned, that's effectively a lowest common multiple question. So the under, like the structure of that question, if you strip away the superficial elements, is just the abstract mathematics of lowest common multiple is this when you talk about um, mathematical structures how are you thinking about it how are you defining it is it the underpinning or underlying abstract mathematics or is it something a bit more than that so i think we we've definitely talked about structure and we talked about the structures of arithmetic before chris and how i've i'm trying to change or certainly at least extend the metaphor somewhat and so whenever I think about structure in mathematics, in addition to the context that the structures from arithmetic sort of are represented by, I'm also thinking about the pieces that come together to make a much bigger idea. And, like, and so like you say, whenever, whenever I imagine that problem, I'm imagining Cuisinart rods, placing them on a number track, to, and because then you can see the, the sort of the proportional relationships between the different values and then you can use that you know hopefully that's how you get to the the solution here and so i think yeah when i talk about structure i can't quite touch it but it's like you say it, it is the abstract mathematics by and large you need to look at the mathematics in terms of what pieces are interplaying to get to the point where you're at i don't know if i've made that any clearer chris but it, it's almost it's it's the it's the high the high high different bits of mathematics relate to each other in as much as it is the context as well. I think that it's, it's interesting there this idea of manipulatives can be used to show big mathematical ideas, and and we can explore those big mathematical ideas and then maybe relate them as well. And it's almost like almost dancing backwards and forwards in time. So let let's say um, like I I, I think that the idea of constant difference is massively underused in subtraction. So the idea that children being able to, to be able to understand that eight subtract five is equivalent to nine subtract six, eight subtract five um, equivalent to seven subtract four, and to see that idea of constant difference. But then the extent to which children could look at and manipulate calculation. And again, that would be an example where I can, I can 
I can explore a big mathematical idea, this principle, and then can children in upper key stage two still be able to apply that to play around with numbers to prime them for calculation? So can we can we extend that this thinking? Maybe we make that representation then with a bar model. Can we use it? The calculation that I wrote down, 604 subtract 168. Can it then become a normal behavior um, for children to think, well, actually, before I do that written calculation, I'm just going to subtract five from the minuend and the subtrahend, and then I'll perform the calculation. And again, I, in showing the mathematical structure, it might be that we then move into almost like maths content, if you like, or, or a number range for a different year group. But that would be just an example of how it can help us focus on those underlying structures. I think it's both really, really interesting answers. I think this is something we could talk about all day. So I'll try and kind of put a pin in it somewhat. I think as I was asking the question, there was part of me that, th that was thinking that we've already mentioned um, Oliver Caviglioli once in this episode. And given his fan of, that he's a fan of the work of uh, George Lakoff and Rafael Nunez. Yeah, George Lakoff and Rafael Nunez. Their work, they would be listening to me talking about abstract mathematics and then talking about concrete mathematics as if the two things were definitively separate and would be you know screaming because they they would say no this is not a not a thing the idea of separating the two out probably isn't a valuable way of thinking about mathematics as far as they're concerned all of mathematics is built from metaphors that at their foundation are um, empirical you know, they're all, it's all experience based. And from that, you know, foundation of experience, all of it, all of, all of the metaphors of mathematics grow. Now there are criticisms of that point of view that I probably don't really comprehend, but at the same time, I think it's interesting that both of your answers kind of had that, that perspective, almost as if moving between the two of them allows a, a better grasp of the mathematics and almost that the, the magic for want of a better phrase is in the in the link between that supposedly abstract mathematics and that concrete stuff. Slightly back on task then with the question, how can we get the most from manipulatives? Are there any other bits and pieces you'd like to say? I mean, I, I guess the only other thing is what I think we're always looking for in school is consistency and for children to have a consistent journey. And I think that for this to be a, a whole school discussion. So again, it, it, you would hope that there is a consistent route that children experience throughout the school rather than it just being if you like to the discretion of a teacher who may have more or less experience to to outline that and, and it's probably more clearly mapped out in terms of a route through calculation than it is in other aspects of the maths curriculum so that i guess would be the other kind of big rock that i would i would consider yeah you absolutely took the words out of your mouth there Kiara. i think i've had many conversations with year six teachers who think oh i'd love to do this but my children don't know how to use Cuisinart rods or they've never seen um, you know, base 10 equipment. And, or you'll have a conversation and say, well, they, they just play with it. And the first lesson I normally do with a new resource is give children time to play. And hopefully that has happened in nursery and reception, like you say, and there's been this well thought through journey, you know, all the way through primary mathematics. So that by the time you get to year five or year six, you're looking at the multiplication of two, two like maybe not necessarily like fractions, but two fractions, and you're using Cuisinart rods to get underneath what's actually happened with the scale, rather than 
having to use Cuisenaire rods for some sort of one-to-one -one correspondence. And I think that that comes by schools having a big picture. This is the journey. And there are many, many journeys. You, know, you don't need to use all the same representations. You know, you'll find different um, models and images in Shanghai than you will in Singapore, than you will in Texas, than you will in the United Kingdom. And I think it's about deciding what you as a school want to do and then align your pupils who, you know, they may not need access to this stuff. But I think some things, like, like I said, like the multiplication of fractions seems really easy on the, on the surface. But when you get right underneath it, it's a really beautiful and complex um, thing, I suppose. I wonder along these lines, or as part of this question, I start to think about practical concerns. And maybe this isn't something that kind of quite fits with the nature of the conversation, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. One of the first things that came into my mind when we were thinking about the question, how can we get the most from these? I started thinking from a maths coordinator's point of view and the idea of organization. I think there are effectively three different ways that I've seen manipulatives organized in upper key stage two or across a school generally. The first is there's a big box in the maths cupboard, which is only used for lesson observations or when the maths coordinator is looking generally, um, or there's a tray of random bits, or even if it is the Dean's blocks or whatever it might be, but it's a tray, not particularly well organized in the corner of the room. Um, that's better, but again, I don't think it necessarily lends itself to all teachers, and I'm including those who aren't necessarily hugely infused about manipulatives to using them. The best organization that I've seen and I've tried to do uh, in a school has involved packets of stuff, which effectively is this is a table set of deans for year two, out they come, plonk, 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 or this is a, a packet for a pair, and that way of doing things, it comes out, it goes back away. I've seen that be used in such a way that teachers who aren't necessarily that enthusiastic sorry, about um, manipulatives to begin with, they start to make it part of their everyday practice. In short, do you think that that kind of mundane aspect is something worth considering when we're thinking about like the, how to get the most from these? I mean, I, I think that it would be really easy to underappreciate the importance of, for, for children and adults, just the routine behaviours that, that exist. And, and, and it is some of the little details. It's, it's easy to dismiss and, and say, well, this is what we should be doing. And to dismiss the very practical reasons why it actually doesn't work for, for, a, lot of, for a lot of time pressure teachers. And I think, again, it is almost walking into systems or where children are trained into these routines because a little bit like Kieran was alluding to on the on the previous response the idea that we know that manipulatives add cognitive load as well to children if they're not familiar with them and I think having all those systems in place are really critical I, I know that when we had a, a tray of um, a, a laptop trolley tray and if I was the if, if the teacher was the, the our technician always used to say that if if you just had one batch for a class, then you know that you're using them next, and so you'll charge them up. But what we found is when the trolley was being moved around to different classes, that you take a little bit less care on how they're put away. And actually, that was the thing that determined the extent to which people would use the laptops, because you don't want to take the trolley out and then realise that four of them are out of battery. So I actually think that that becoming normalised 
is probably enormously more significant in terms of resources actually being used than, than we'd recognize. I think it also allows you to focus on the numbers you select and you when you're writing questions or tasks, because if you've got a set of base 10 equipment and you know what the maximum is, then you're not going to allow them to answer questions that go beyond that, you know, because you, you can't, with the best will in the world, have every pupil having nine of everything, you know, all the way through, you know, especially not the thousands. And so if you're thinking, okay, well, I want my my tens to some no higher than four, but I'm going to regroup in the ones, then I can make sure they've got more ones than they do tens in these pots, because that's the focus of my mathematics. And it almost hones your attention into what is necessary and what's possible. And, um, you know, because you can still explore that part of, of that part of addition with smaller numbers, you know, or certainly with the value of the digits is reasonably small because it doesn't make the mathematics any less complex. Certainly, I don't think so. So it almost, yeah, I, I would agree with Gareth. You know, I think the more focused we can be and training pupils into those routines makes a massive difference in terms of the time you need to set up. You know, like you said, Gareth, time per, we don't have, we, you know, the opportunity cost and getting things ready if there's a central resource and we have to go and sort through everything, you know, trying to find the tens in the, in the base 10 box <laughs> is, an, is, a, is an expensive task in terms of time. And I think, yeah, you know, we're, we're possible. I think that's your, that's your ideal. Final suggestion then, or something again, that came to mind, and this might just reflect my um, lack of capability when it comes to supporting teachers in the use of um, manipulatives. I wonder whether, well, what you guys think about the idea that manipulatives across a school can benefit from the choices of those manipulatives being somewhat parsimonious. So rather than having lots and lots and lots and lots of different manipulatives, I mean, I particularly further up the school, because further down the school, you absolutely want a, a wide array of experiences to build the bedrock of experience upon which mathematics, as we've already discussed, is based. But I wonder whether further up the school in particular, having two or three or whatever it might be, um, types of manipulative that you have carefully trained the teachers to use, that the teachers are confident in using, is perhaps um, more achievable than having more that through inevitably the teachers are slightly less confident with and have slightly less professional development upon. Um, what are your thoughts on that, guys? Well, I think I think if you take your initial point at the start of this episode and choosing things for a purpose and having that big picture and consistency, you, I think you get to the point where you only have a select few resources that you utilize based on what you want to achieve. You know, for instance, I'm thinking double-sided counters and Cuisinart can show the same idea in different ways. And really, I don't necessarily think you want to do both all the time, you know. So I think I think you end you end up in the situation where your models and images reflect what you prioritized in the curriculum. And so I, I yeah, you know, and even even early on, Chris, I think there are lots of manipulatives that allow pupils to develop their one to one correspondence, those principles of counting. But I think when you get down to the what's really important in terms of their mathematical development. You know, 
you'll, you'll maybe have three or four representations that can do many, many jobs as you go through, you know, thinking of 10 frame and its utilization in year one and its utilization in year five. It's the same idea, but just in a much more complex scenario by the time you get to year five. But actually, if they're familiar with that early on, it makes, it makes the next time, you know, you, you jump through some of the hoops you need to get to the, the end of the track, so to speak. Yeah, I, th I think really I would just echo that. I, I think that, that you would have to have a, a very good reason why you think I, I would choose this manipulative that children are unfamiliar with over that one that they are familiar with. And only if it was showing a very specific mathematical structure in a way that was very clear, would I then introduce a, a, a new manipulative for, for, for those reasons? And, and I think it's just having that, it, it, it's really someone mapping out that journey to some extent, you know, in a way that's, that's specific to the, the, the school, but bearing in mind that every time we add resources, resources that children are not familiar with and not used to using, um, we add potentially a lot of extra load. And so just kind of thought to that, I think is, 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 is important. Amy Bills was making fun of the title of the CPAL chapter in my book because I, I went so far and included literally everything that is involved in it so that no one could just say, I use this approach, you know, because very often you know, people say, I use CPAL, not necessarily, you know, as effectively as, as you might hope. And I think I'm always banging on about take your time. Development happens over the long period. If you just got one manipulative and focused on it in your CPD sessions and you revisited it, you know, across the year, how have we utilized this? Are we getting better at it? You know, by the end of four years, you've got staff who are really, really good at using some core representations, some core um, tools. And so I think, yeah, I'm th whenever I'm listening to you speak, Gareth, I'm thinking, yeah, take your time. You know, you come in, Gareth, and you you show here here are all the possibilities with the, with the 10 frames, and then you get really good at using 10 frames. And then the year after, well, let's look at Cuisinart. And I think Cuisinart is one of those ones that you could get, you could spend three years, you know, trying to get really good at it. And, and certainly I've been using them for a while. When I, when I see people who've been using them for 20, 30 years, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, there, there's still so much I don't know about this. The other thing that I would just mention as well is around, I think it's easy to see when, when we're talking about manipulatives, to see it through the lens of me as a teacher, and let's say I'm in year five, and, and to be able to see what I think will work really well and what we naturally don't see, because we just don't have that perspective, is what the child's journey has been up, and, up until that point and the different experiences that they've had and what I do now, how does it build on what they've experienced to date? And I think like being able one way or another to have that lens of what is this individual child experience, what's their journey and how do I fit into that within the use of manipul manipulatives as well is, is, an, is a kind of is a really important piece. We've talked about the ways that we can get the most from manipulatives and perhaps we'll have intimated the answer to the question I'm about to ask, but I think it's worth explicitly exploring anyway. Are there any downsides to the use of manipulatives, specifically in Upper Key Stage 2, but I guess more generally as well? I mean, I, I think that there's very significant downsides and I think it'd be easy to, to overlook or downplay the significance and often schools, again, aspire to using more manipulatives in, in upper key stage two. And, and I think 
that it would be easy to overlook the, the downsides and the negatives that are real and, and do exist. I mean, the classroom management and the logistics around that and how do we focus children's thinking on the key mathematical ideas and just the, the thought to, to what extent does my management of the use of resources or the way that children have been trained to use those resources over time, how does that, to what extent is that gonna aid their thinking? And that is a really significant. And, and also to what extent is the use of the resource, like is it legitimate or does it become tenuous? Because if I guess I'm being asked to use manipulatives and so I, I position them where they're not legitimate. 10 and 11 year old children will kind of see through that. And I think that there's, there's reason why children will think, oh, these manipulatives, they're not for me. Because if their use becomes tenuous, and I think that, that that's something that, that, you know, that, that children can see. And so I think it is important just to, and, and for it not perhaps to be something, like I say, that teachers just have to make a decision on at the end of the day, before tomorrow's lesson but it, it's something that's kind of been been mapped out to some extent you know we, we we've mentioned about the increase in cognitive load and again I, I think a massive part of that is actually thinking is this something that I as a teacher will model that the children will benefit from having this this physical experience themselves um and I think that will come to the the nature of the the concept the complexity of it the, the actual complexity of using the resources, the number of resources that, that might be needed to represent an idea. I just, I, like, again, I, I, I've written a couple of examples down. So I, I think I'd mentioned before, if I was, I was looking at 20 divided by three, matchsticks could be used, that they're great for representing that idea. I can manipulate them. Logistically, it's not too difficult. Let, let's say I, I was looking at a compensation strategy for addition, 2,998 plus... 1,365. Now, now let's say I, I used place value counters in 10 frames and I was looking at this adjustment that, and, and we can see this rounding to 2,000 strategy. What happens when I take two from the five and I give it to the 2,998? Well, listen, the last thing you'd want to do, and this is obviously a very extreme example, is having children, having all that equipment to represent that so we've used manipulatives. That would be an instance where it might be this value in me modeling that. But again, I think it's, where is it legitimate? Now, in some instances, it might be, it's a useful tool for communication for children as well, to communicate an idea. But again, if it is that we get to, you know, be shoehorning the resources in, I think that not only does it become difficult for teachers and lesson thinking in, in lessons, but also children learn, actually, I don't need the equipment, which, which is, a, a very real downside, I'd say. Yeah, I, I definitely read a study to the effect of when pupils understood a concept, it was actually, it, it took, you know, it, it wasted their time. I don't know, I can't remember what the outcome was measured, but essentially, the, you know, there was no point in giving those pupils any sort of scaffold to work with because they had gone past the point where it, it becomes useful. You know, they'd already made that, those connections in their, in their minds, so to speak. I think that speaks to what you know, you're, you're saying there, Gareth. I think, the cost really impacts when we can use these. And I think, you know, it's 2021. They cost far too much money for schools to universally utilize them in the way that we hope they might. You know, I don't know if I'm, if I'm being unreasonable, but I think it should be possible 
to make them affordable for all schools. And I think, you know, when I, when I think about the opportunity cost, when we th I think about, you know, the eight times tables and having eight times tables worth of counters on my desk, that's one opportunity cost. I just don't have enough space. But as a maths lead, can I afford to bring what I want into my school? And I think, yeah, it is definitely, you know, when I don't have the funds, you know, I, I highly recommend using MathSpot instead. You know, I wish they were affordable, but like Bernie Westacott has published, you know, or certainly shared on Twitter, lots of papers where he talks about the connection between virtual manipulatives and actual, you know, concrete manipulatives. And I think, I don't think you get a lot of the experience that Gareth and I have been talking about tonight, but I do think in instances where school can't afford to have a class sets of whatever resource it might be, I think I think you go for the virtual, um, you know, and that's my biggest concern is the fact that, you know, it can cost several hundreds of pounds per class. You think of a two form entry school, you know, you're talking many thousands of pounds before you've got, you know, I think a, a curriculum's worth. I don't know. Have I gone off tangent there, Chris? Not at all. I think cost is a significant issue. If I may, I'll kind of reflect on what both of you have said. What you said there, Gareth, about um, the ways in which they're sometimes used that are effectively inefficient, I think is a, yeah, is a really interesting point. You mentioned also cognitive load there, in particular, the idea of actually it might, you know, using them increases cognitive load or it can um, increase cognitive load. I wonder if there's also circumstances under which it, the use of manipulatives can reduce cognitive load, almost like they're being used when manipulatives, for example, are being used as a calculator. It reduces cognitive load, but the load that's being reduced is that you're not getting them to think about the thing you want them to think about anymore. You're not exposing structure to use that word again, you're not exposing structure, you're getting them to, yeah, use it as a rudiment, use the manipulatives as a rudimentary calculator instead. So I thought that was a, you know, really interesting point. In terms of cost, if, if, if you are a school and you are interested in Dean's blocks in particular, get in touch with me via direct message on um, Twitter. I'm not gonna advertise it because I don't want people thinking I'm sponsored by them or something. But I have found a company where deans are dirt cheap, where they're at a cost where you think, yeah, this is just how much the plastic costs to chop up. And that's it. So um, and it's much cheaper than you find on a lot of the usual sites. So feel free to get in touch with me if that's a particular manipulative that you do want to buy in fairly decent quantities. I think you could kit out a whole school really cheaply. Um, other manipulatives. I mean, like you say, um, counters relatively cheap multi-link cubes relatively cheap but lots of other ones are annoyingly expensive certainly and that is of course a downside to using them that you it does take a big bite out of your budget i think that there's one other downside or one other time when i wouldn't use manipulatives and it's that teacher who's saying you know in year six well, i really want my pupils to use manipulatives but they haven't had the the experiences early on I think you've gone past the point of no return. And I think you're probably better investing your time and giving them a really as solid an understanding of mathematics as you can without manipulatives because of the time it would take to train them up, to give them those experiences that are necessary for them to get the absolute most out of it. So and even if we just thought in terms of the stress 
that it might cause the teacher to go through that process, I think you're better off just saying, okay, let's go back to year one. Let's go back to nursery and let's build this up from the ground up. You know, I think, you know, certainly, you know, I, I've, I've spoken with teachers who have been quite worried. You know, they, they want to do what they see as the right thing, but they just don't have the capacity because of the people's experiences. And I think, yeah, I think, I think you cut your losses. I think that's, that just ties into experience that long-time listeners will know I often talk about my partner, Sylvia, um, secondary maths teacher. She's been working with students and she has been using 10 frames. But from conversations with her, I think she would be the first to accept that if they were using the 10 frames and the two-sided counters in year seven with no experience of manipulatives, that actually the costs would outweigh the benefits her use of 10 frames effectively is on is is on is on an interactive whiteboard or is on a you know under a visualizer so that she's getting the benefits of a, a, an understanding of that representation because these are children who are just beginning to grasp say number bonds inside 20 fluently using the sort of representations that you are recently famous for gareth but because of the nature of the class and the nature of their experiences she's able to kind of go halfway and use them as a purely visual representation. Whereas the actual handling of them would have made something that was potentially very useful and has proven to be very useful, quite the opposite. We've talked about how to get the most from manipulatives generally, and also in upper key stage two and ditto downsides. What specific aspects of key stage two mathematics do you think most benefit from the use of manipulatives? I think, I think we've covered quite a lot of them. I think the power in reutilizing base 10 equipment for an expiration of decimals, two color counters, and you know, anything to do with fractions, particularly the fractions that we normally encounter in year five, I think really powerful. Algebraic reasoning, you know, looking at linear equations, like Garth said earlier on, looking at unknowns, I think we can use quite a few of the manipulatives we've discussed tonight. So I think it's, it seems to be the mathematics that is naturally linked to the mathematics that's come before, but is going slightly deeper. You only thought you knew fractions before you get into year five. And then the, the fun really starts, you know. So I think you're almost tightening the screw a little bit. And you've got this, you know, it's it's almost they're almost thresholds that you go through. Because if you if you go through those thresholds, secondary school is a relative piece of cake, you know. And I, I'm not to say not to say to make a, to make light of the journey that pupils go through in year seven, eight, nine, but if, if you understand fractions, you understand place value. You know, I know that you're going to understand, you know, and if you understand algebra that we cover in as far in year six, you know, you've got a really good bedrock on which the rest of the, the castle can be built. I think I'm mixing metaphors there. Yeah, and I guess the only thing that I would add is I'd, I'd just like to throw in a couple of examples of, of other little areas, because I think we, we'd mentioned before about... Um, about the importance of or, or where we get the most benefit from exploring big mathematical ideas and I guess like a, a couple of examples for that would, would be looking at in uh, in multiplication where using a doubling and halving strategy and, and and seeing that for example if we can explore 
with using counters in an array that six times four is equivalent to three times eight. And again, I could do that by um, in in you know using the count manipulating the counters to to make the different array, and then to be able to then relate that idea to looking at other calculations where it could and couldn't be used, and considering well when is this um, helpful for which calculations is is this strategy helpful for which calculations isn't it as helpful? But the foundation being understanding this big idea: does this big idea still exist? Um, when I use it with other calculations and so on. And the other was uh, just, just my very favourite calculation when it comes to adding fractions, which, I, again, I, I came across on a, on, a, on a course and seeing it in an American classroom, which was three quarters add five eighths. Now, a process that children would often go through would be, well, let's convert the three quarters into eighths. Now, again, with a visual representation, and again, I, my favorite there is using fractions cards that we can overlay eighths on top of the quarters so see that three quarters is equivalent to six eighths when children actually have the visual representation for three quarters plus five eighths intuitively and they can see those five eighths would make a one then quite intuitively they'll often think rather than when thinking well three quarters let's convert that into eight they'll just think i'll make a one um, and i can see that's two eighths to make the one and then that will leave three eights. And so just a couple of examples of, of contexts where I'd, I'd, I find the, the visual representative or the manipulatives really add value. And again, I think it is just being, well, say being selective and exploring where, where they will genuinely add that value is, is either a, a means for communication or as for a vehicle for showing for showing structure so again it doesn't become tenuous for children i think is 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 important if i may i'll just chuck in a couple of examples that i've done in the past that i think of quite uh, quite nice when using manipulatives and a key stage two and not just nice effective i feel that the children have picked something up that they wouldn't necessarily have done otherwise i particularly like using them to explore prime numbers. Specifically, I like using counters, if you've got them, like little square counters, we just happen to have them in our school, to explore prime numbers through what arrays you can and cannot make. Because obviously with 12, there are different arrays that you can make. There isn't just effectively one in different orientations. Whereas with the number 13, there is effectively one array that you can make however you happen to orientate it. And thus it is a, um, a prime number so this or ex linking explicitly the area model of multiplication to um, prime numbers or arrays effectively to prime numbers I'm a big fan of that I think it kind of came up indirectly earlier the idea of exploring lowest common multiple as well using things like Cuisinaire obviously in this case you're kind of you're giving an explicit value to a particular Cuisinaire rod which I know somewhat goes against um, the purpose of them but I think for this particular idea, it can be valuable. I, th I think that's positive. Also, now this might sound very fiddly, but I think it it's worked quite well in the past where I've been exploring volume, where you've got the Dean's blocks that are effectively one centimeter cubes, not the ones that kind of fit together and have the bit protruding. So they work like almost like Lego blocks, but the ones that are just a one centimeter cube of plastic being able to say, oh, okay, so we've got 12 centimeter cubed, what different volume, what different ways can you represent that volume? Or what other, you know, what cuboids 
can have that volume as a way of exploring um, the formulae, sorry, the formulae, the formula behind uh, volume of cuboids. So yeah, I think there's lots of bits and pieces in there. I think the nice thing about at least two of those that I've mentioned is that they are bits of equipment that children almost don't need to be hugely familiar with because they're so basic. You know, square counters and Dean's blocks just uses, used as a cube is a, you know, something that will already be very familiar to children. Just one last point I'd like to add on, if I may, is I think with a lot of stuff, and this is in Upper Key Stage 2, but works further down the school, but I think is particularly pertinent to Upper Key Stage 2, is often with a lot of these ideas, and again, this links to something Gareth mentioned earlier, with a lot of these ideas, you demonstrate it with certain well-chosen numbers before exploring larger things later on. So a good example of that might be if we're exploring lowest common multiple using Cuisinaire rods, lovely if you're looking at two, three, and five, not so good if you're then looking at, you know, 50, 10, and 15, for example. So there's, you know, things to think about there. I think in, in a lot of cases, it is the case that you go, let's use these to explore the simple cases and to get the general idea, to use that phrase again, the underlying structure of what's going on. And then we can move on to larger numbers once we've grasped that in the abstract. The, the only other thing I guess that I would add, and, and, and perhaps this is a, a, a piece for another episode, but it's just actually that fluency in addition and subtraction within 20 and how the, the manipulatives can make, because I think children will always default the easiest thing. And it's so common for teachers to say to me, Gareth, actually, they're still in year six counting in ones on the fingers and, and just having that absolute clarity within addition and subtraction facts within 20, how the manipulatives and the journey with the manipulatives, removing the manipulatives, building abstract thought to the point where the easiest thing for children becomes not counting in ones, but counting in, you know, calculating in chunks. So like, for example, if I was looking at 14 subtract nine, it might be that I have um, a 10 and a four in using the 10 frames and, and looking at where do I, you know, where will you subtract the nine from? And children, again, rather than counting backwards, thinking, well, actually, it'd be easier for me to subtract the nine from the full 10 frame here. But just having that absolute clarity and, and, and being, you know, understanding that we need to make this the easiest thing for children. And that's the point when they'll transition from those kind of counting one strategies. A slightly provocative next question then. We talked at some points about uh, manipulatives and visual representations almost as one and the same. Obviously, manipulatives do have a lot of overlap with what we might think of as a purely visual representation or a representation that someone can only interact with in a visible sense. Are there any circumstances that you can think of where it might be better just to rely on the visual representation and not to go into manipulatives? I think that that's an interesting one in, in that um, I think that the answer to that, it will, to some extent, be determined by the children in your class. And a little bit like Kieran had mentioned um, before, that actually if children have understood and internalised the process, then it could be that the uh, uh, if we're looking for a visual representation, actually a bar model is a more of an efficient way to communicate an idea that's been 
understood. So I think it, it, it's one lens through which that can be seen is which curriculum areas might we be considering? And another lens to view that through will be actually through the eyes of the child. And to what extent is this necessary in, in developing their understanding or their ability to communicate? Like an, an area that would spring to mind is, it, is if I was finding a fraction of a quantity. And there I might see that so long as that the barrier isn't actually performing the calculation, that it might be that the bar model is kind of representing that structure um, neatly. And, and that would, like I say, that might be an example of a curriculum area that, that I would consider. But I think it has to be viewed from those two lenses of the um, aspects of the curriculum or actually the understanding of the child. And, 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 and it comes back to, I think, something you mentioned before, Chris, it, it, it was just about viewing through the lens of how we're managing children's thinking. And I think if, we, if, we're, if we're looking at the development of children's thinking, then... I, as a teacher, will have more clarity on, on, on the appropriateness of, of the resources and the, the, the when and, and why. Yeah, and if you, if you do that 15, 20 years in a row, you soon start siphoning off, this is appropriate in this situation, this is not appropriate. And you see familiar patterns in your classes and you think, oh, this, these guys remind me of that bunch I had before. What did I do with them? Oh, yeah, I'm going to take that tact. Whereas, you know, sometimes you get a class and they absolutely fly with mathematics. So you you will use a totally different approach because you know, like you said, you, they've got those key bonds internalized and then you can really focus on mathematical structure because you're not focusing on, on the, on the fundamentals so much. Yes. Yeah, so I, I totally agree. It, it, it is case specific, but the more you do it, the easier that decision-making process becomes. And I know Karen, your book, you talk about the, having the understanding of being able to almost dance forwards and backwards as well in the child's journey that they've been through and and maybe thinking well where is it that I might need to come back to those um those representations and I say go back because of course it might be the certain concepts like we're talking about using um equipment to uh, to uncover algebraic relationships so it isn't always a case of going back but it may be that we just need to understand well this is the underpinning and and it might be that I will come back to to this, and and I know where children have, uh, have come from and where they're and where they're going, and and I think being able to dance along that, and again that really comes from well as well as the professional dialogue, it just comes from experience, and there's no shortcut without experience. I've seen some teaching, and I've seen professional development from particular teacher educators that advocates at least in some situations when teaching mathematics, dealing with the how before the why. In other words, taking children to a position of fluency with a procedure, and I guess it's more procedures I'm talking about here, before looking at the, what we've called in this episode, the, like the underlying structures or the, the way, the representations that allow us to understand what's going on. Firstly, do you, in any circumstances, advocate such an approach? Or do you think, let's grasp what's going on, then get fluent with the procedure? And are, if you do ever advocate the first, is there um, a different way to using manipulatives in those circumstances? Well, let me go first there and, and kind of say that I'm very interested by that idea. But my personal experience, I have to say, has always been using the manipulatives where, whereby helping children to build an understanding of a process. 
And so I'll be interested in, in, in everyone's thoughts there. I think it is very in, it's interesting, though, to think, well, if, it's, if children will find it easier to grasp the process first, then there'll be fertile ground to understand that process later, where the equipment can be a vehicle for getting there. So kind of theoretically, I think there's great basis there. But I have to say that in my own practical experience, that's not been something that I've actually uh, that I've actually done. So again, I'd be very interested in, on, on thoughts. I've definitely heard people talk about this idea before, and I can see the reasons why. You know, my preference in my own practice is for both to happen in tandem. So I'm literally going, right, this is what it looks like when I've manipulated this resource, and here's how I might record this. And you're, you're drawing those parallels between the two so that we can, over time, build both. But I think in terms of your question, Chris, when I think of, and this isn't upper key stage two, when I think of year three colleagues and they get to October and they think the, the children don't understand the addition or subtraction of three digit numbers, I'll say to them, right, this is a key stage journey, certainly a, a phase journey. Don't stress yourself over the fact, you know, piece by piece, if you can get them to a point of understanding by the end of the year, then you'll be helping your year four colleague. Or if you get them to the end of, by the end of year four, you'll be helping your year five and six colleagues. And so I had seen many instances where the requisite knowledge wasn't in place for pupils to grasp it the first time, but they could work through the process. And I think that's okay because it can become a very intense part of the year if we get to week eight and our kids don't understand. You know, we haven't failed it's part of a much bigger journey, I think, because if, if we if we leave lowercase is two with an understanding of the four operations, you know, as sort of outlined the national curriculum, I think you're in a good place to, to fly from there. So, yeah, I, I can see why. And I've definitely recommended to colleagues not to worry as much about the fact that they haven't understood completely what's happening because they could follow that process and we can build on that, you know, as we go past, you know, as, as, as time moves by. The only area where I've experimented with this has been in um, written addition and subtraction actually and I've had some success with it and actually I quite like it as a way of doing things I only really noticed it as potentially being advantageous with those children who struggle frankly that are yeah the, the, the children that where I bring out the manipulatives end up trying to use it just as a calculator and aren't even while you are showing and demonstrating and guiding they are more likely to see it just as a oh okay this is the this is the kit that allows me to get the answer rather than no let, let's explore what's going on and there, there does seem to be some level of fertile ground for okay now let's get the kit out and see why this works that it just seems to I, I quite like it i would highly recommend people have a go at it that said i don't think it necessarily applies further again i'd need to test it and experiment with it to know but i think it's most useful for for things that feel very procedural anything where you say what's the method for doing this there it can be quite i think there's potential for it to be at least an equally productive way of doing things. But I think for a lot of things where you are just grasping a concept like 
prime numbers or what a multiple is, for example, then it might be, I mean, it might make more sense to have that, for want of a better phrase, the why before, or as you say, Kieran, alongside the how. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting area of um, mathematics pedagogy. I think off the top of my head, I think it's Chris Bolton who talks about this subject persuasively, um, in my view. But yeah, something to explore, perhaps. I, th I think an interesting point there is, is the use of the um, manipulatives where in, in transitioning because it's, it's interesting you say Chris a, a, about the idea that this becomes the crutch that children use to find the answer so an example there you, you're just talking about written subtraction I was thinking like if we're doing 658 subtract 237 I can I can just remove the counters and and it, it's not aiding my thinking but if I have the the 600s in a 10 frame the five tens and the eight ones and then the children can see them but actually can't move them and then I could ask them to consider subtracting 237 or subtracting 273 where they won't be able to subtract the the seven tens from the five tens but if I actually have the equipment there and the children can see it and then they have to visualize what will happen and almost form an expectation before they come to move that. And that's almost this transition between using the visuals to remove them. It, it's like, uh, you know, uh, my watching my daughter when she's doing, I remember a year or so ago, watching her doing, uh, mentally doing seven out of five. And she is literally, I'm watching her with a hand moving the five that exists in her head across to the other seven. And it's almost trying to be able to use the manipulatives to develop children's ability to create that as a mental model. A nice example of what we've been talking about so far has been um, the use of uh, deans in particular to talk about place value. Naturally, the use of place value counters can also be a way to represent what's going on there, particularly thinking about what you said there, Gareth, with regards to um, the use of 10 frames. As, as something that aligns with that. When do you think it's best to make the switch from using deans or a, a set of numbers, be it integers, decimals, et cetera, to place value counters from those deans, both in terms of integers and decimals and, and why? Why do you kind of make that decision? When, why is it you make that transition at a given point? I think there are two things to consider. One, why are we using each of those manipulatives? So base 10 equipment, we're looking at relative magnitude and we're looking at how, the, the, how our place value system works. Once we get beyond the hundreds, it becomes unmanageable. And so at that point, the reason you would use, in my view, place value counters is because you want to take the pupils a little bit closer to the mental manipulation of those numbers. And you can represent that manipulation more readily with place value counters, which are easily manipulated. You know, you can very quickly exchange, regroup, and then calculate, you know, not doing the calculation, but going through the steps that you want their brain to go through when they're doing it. Because, you know, we, we can mentally manipulate quite large numbers when whenever we become proficient at it. And so I think that's the first thing you think about is why am I using each? 
The second thing I would think about is the distance between when I want to use the equipment with integers and when I want to use it with decimals. Because if I make that transition in the same academic year, I'd hazard that I'm going to have more confused pupils than I am going to have pupils who understand that this thousand block can also represent one. I think if you if you transition base 10 equipment to Nash equipment out in uh, towards the end of year three and then bring it back in in year five, you've given them enough space for that mathematical maturation to sort of occur. And, 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 and you know, that study actually talks about two years. And but I'm just talking about my personal experience. I think phase out in three, bring back in in five. Those are the two things I'm considering, you know, why? And how long? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. From my, my experience of of using, um, you know, using deans to represent decimals, I, th I think that is difficult for a child to make that transition. I think having that time gap is just it's just great advice. I think, I mean, the only thing that I would add, uh, which may have been commented on on already, really, is just then um, when, when the benefit of having the place value counters over the dean's equipment, I think it's just that you can utilize the ten frames as well. Um, and I think that they're then uh, that and that they're also more efficient for showing related facts in that I could overlay, for example, tens onto a one and, and children immediately being able to make those connections. You've got those benefits as well. And of course, it's reliant on the idea of children being able to unitize that that this one object can represent more than one. So this counter can represent can represent ten. And, and I think then you have these efficiencies of of being able to use the 10 frames and and as a more powerful vehicle for seeing related facts the only thing i was going to add but i don't think it's probably worth adding is the fact that effectively what i know that a lot of people will be effectively following the national curriculum which means that there's an introduction to decimals in year three sort of counting in tenths which is in there and then decimals kind of hit a lot harder in year four which means that it might be harder to have that kind of gap. So, I think that's right, isn't it? That's the way the, that's the way the national curriculum aligns. So perhaps for those listeners that are dealing with effectively a curriculum in their school that does kind of roughly follow the national curriculum, they can still get that gap in there, at least to some extent, by slightly tweaking their year three curriculum, making the year three decimals work purely fractional decimal well not dec not fra not decimals but fractional so purely counting in tenths all you have to do is kind of slightly tweak that and then year four can be where you introduce decimal notation and if you do that start of year three you are using um deans still and then you quite quick you, you then you're using it for place value at the start of year three perhaps for a little bit of addition and subtraction though personally i prefer place value counters at that point but it then gives you at least the rest of the year, new classroom, new teacher for then going, okay, this is now this, what was previously a thousand block. I've put a one into my special machine, my special jumbotron and outcomes. My one is now this, you know, that sort of thing can still be done. But I think we've kind of maybe covered that in a previous episode. So yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep that in, Chris. That's really important because it just shows how long I've been ignoring the national curriculum that I 
had forgotten <laughs> more exactly. Well, you say you're going to keep that in. That was a very rough explanation. Do you not want me quickly to tidy uh, it up, or are you happy? No, it's it's 100 cool. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, it's, lovely it's, stuff. Yeah, you know, we, we, we've got a key stage within which to work. So I reckon my advice would be to think really carefully about when you want things to be introduced, like as you describe, because there is flexibility. And, um, you know, the year groups, I don't you know, certainly aren't statutory and are at most advisory. So, Chris, we started this episode looking for six ways to improve our utilization of manipulatives in Upper Key Stage 2. How did we do? Well, the six that we seem to have come to a consensus upon are as follows. The manipulatives themselves need to be chosen and used for a very specific purpose, which has been you know, thought about carefully beforehand. They need to be also be chosen for efficient use. Gareth used the expression to help children become thinking efficient. I love that. They need also to link to children's intuitive understanding and lived experience of the world wherever possible. Each manipulative should be part of a consistent journey linked to what's come before. Uh, and ideally that should include at the start of that opportunity for open-ended exploration. We need to consider the organization of manipulatives in the classroom, in particular thinking about how that can, there can be routines that embed the use of those manipulatives. And lastly, we need to ensure that we're not simply using as wide a array of manipulatives as we possibly can, but that we are being somewhat parsimonious in our manipulative choices across the school. Excellent. Well, that was a whole lot of fun. I don't think that's the last time we're going to talk about manipulatives on the, on the podcast, but I think all set through is say thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you. And to everyone at home, until next time. Thanks for listening.